Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm speaking with Tim Robinson and Lisa Tilstra, co-founders of the REI Concierge. Welcome, Tim and Lisa, to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us, Michelle. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Great. Let's get into it. Tell us a bit about yourselves. What sent you overseas? Sure, I'll start. My wife is an FSL or foreign service officer with the U.S. State Department, which makes me what they call an EFM and State Department jargon or eligible family member. I'm a realtor when we're back in the U.S., but we got assigned here to The Hague in the Netherlands about almost two years ago now. So we moved here with our two-year-old son, and we're here for about another year, depending on what happens with the whole COVID thing and all that. And I met my partner, Lisa, here. Her and her husband, John, were serving here as well almost two years ago now and realized they were real estate investors as well as my wife and I are. And so we just got started talking about real estate and investment and different strategies and kind of took off from there. We became friends. And then this past October, we began talking about starting a business, helping other Americans abroad invest in real estate back in the U.S. while they're living overseas. And like Tim, I'm also married to a foreign service officer, as he mentioned, and my husband and I have been living abroad with the State Department since 2012 in the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, the Netherlands, where we met Tim and Adrian. This past year, my husband's been in Iraq. I've been living in France, and we're moving to Sri Lanka in a couple of months. And when we first moved overseas, we had a primary residence here in the U.S. that we had rented out. It all went well. I wasn't sure how it would go renting out a property from the other side of the world, but everything went well. And we began to grow our real estate investment portfolio from overseas and have really been pleasantly surprised at how well it's gone and the opportunities that it's opened up for us. The REI Concierge helps Americans overseas buy properties back in the U.S. Could you tell us a bit more about your company and what's the backstory to how it was founded? Sure. First, I want to clarify REI. It's not necessarily my favorite outdoor clothing store, but actually stands for real estate investment. Those of you that are listening that don't know what REI stands for, we're talking about real estate investment and not necessarily outdoor gear. Just wanted to clarify that first for anyone who's unfamiliar with the term. Like I said in the intro, Lisa and I started talking. We're both real estate investors, have been for numerous years, continue to buy properties while we live overseas, as well as manage our current portfolios that are back in the U.S., if you know any real estate investors, we talk a lot. So we were talking about what we were doing to grow our portfolios, some of the issues we were having with management, more of our long-term view of what we wanted to do while we were posted overseas. And we had other people coming up to us and saying, I can't believe you guys do that. How do you buy houses when you're living here and you're buying houses that you don't see and you can't manage or market or anything? We kind of help them. And then as we started talking to them more, we realized there was an opportunity here to really serve other U.S. expats that are interested in real estate but don't know even where to start. We do a big education piece as part of our service offering, as well as just basic financial education, real estate principles 101. And then I can get more into this later about the specifics of what we do. But we like to help people. I mean, this is something we enjoy doing, and we're happy to share our knowledge so that people don't have to make the same mistakes that we have. It's been really great so far. We've gotten a lot of great feedback, and I think people are really grateful. A lot of people want to get involved in real estate, but they don't necessarily have that time or inclination to dig deep and really learn all the factors that make a successful investment. So we're happy to take that off their plate and walk them through how to do it so that they can be a little bit more passive in their investment. A big thing we like to do is establish risk tolerance. That's a big hurdle for a lot of people to get over is not only buying a property, but buying a property that they most likely will never see. 
once we get that established, we can really pick the market that best suits them and pick the kind of property or asset class that we think will work best for them. And it's all just really an ongoing conversation with them. We're very easily approachable and it's really just more of a coaching consultation type relationship where we really help people get into investments that are going to work for them and their family. And then we have established relationships with real estate teams in the top 20 cash flowing markets in the U.S. and then some other subsidiary markets that we work really well with, that we trust, that we've vetted for a long time. And then we help to put our investors in touch with those folks and help them be the boots on the ground team that buy the property and manage it for them so that they can be more hands-off when they're living abroad. That's kind of the gist of how we got started. And we're continuing to grow and excited to meet more people in both foreign service and just other U.S. expats that are living overseas. So where does an American who's living abroad even begin when looking to invest in U.S. property while located in another country? What things should one consider? Yeah, there's a lot to consider. <laughs> like I said, it's hard to purchase a property when you're examining factors when you're in the state or in the neighborhood, much less when you're thousands of miles overseas and can't actually see the property you're buying. That's why we started this business is because we have done that. And it is scary. It's intimidating to sort through this fire hose of data that's out there available on the internet. There's tons of very valuable websites that analyze markets and give you stats on stats on stats. It's a lot to digest, especially if you're brand new to real estate investment. So we really like to educate our clients. Like I mentioned earlier, we like to walk them through, establish what they're looking for, get a better feel of their overall investment picture and how risk averse they may be. And then we tell them what we think might suit them and put them on the path towards picking up a property in that market. If you're looking at specific markets, I don't want to go down too big of a rabbit hole here because this could be a whole educational series on what to look for in a market when you're investing in real estate. But some of the top ones that Lisa and I look for, we've, we don't focus on any markets that do not cash flow. And what do I mean by that is a property that you can purchase, put a renter in, pay property management so that you don't have to manage your property since you can't because you don't live there. And you still get a couple hundred bucks a month on top of that. So that whittles down a majority of markets in the U.S. There's over 400 major metro areas in the U.S., and there's probably 20 or 30 that can actually cash flow at any given price point. So that whittles that down a lot. And then we also take a look at jobs are a huge driver of local economies. So we look at job growth over the past couple of years within our markets. We look at job diversity is a huge one. We also what happened with Detroit in 2009. They're making a big comeback now. But if any local economy is based really solely on one industry, such as the auto industry, and that goes under, people flee the city. So we really like to look for cities that are diverse in terms of healthcare, in terms of tech, in terms of industry or auto manufacturing, things like that, where if one industry goes over, there's still plenty of jobs to go around for the local population. We also obviously look at population growth. Are people moving to that city or are they slowly looking to the suburbs or more rural areas? We look at appreciation potential. That's more speculative because no one can tell what the market's going to do. But we look for places where it has appreciated over the past few years. And all trends point to the fact that it's probably still going to keep appreciating. We also look for just solid tertiary markets where there's military bases or there's hospitals or higher education. Those markets don't tend to be the all-star appreciation markets, but they're so solid that people always need housing there. And as long as the prices work and the cash flows, then we can certainly put people in touch with those markets as well. So once you get that market nailed down, then we start putting you in touch with people back in the U.S. that can help you make it a reality. So we work with a lot of turnkey providers. I won't go into too much detail about what that is, but it's pretty much ready to go houses. So they buy houses that need work. 
they renovate them, they fix them up, they put a tenant in, and then they manage them themselves. Pay the price for the upgraded house, and then you pay monthly for the, the property management. And it's really a one-shop deal for our investors. So they find that super easy and very headache-free. We also have a great team of local lenders, so mortgage brokers and insurance agents as well, title attorneys, property management companies, all folks that we've vetted and worked with that we can put our investors in touch with to help make sure that their investment's in the right hands. And one thing Lisa's going to go into later is our, our overall strategy, our guiding force, is just something we call the why, the how, and the risk. That's really how we approach our new investors, and we have them fill out some worksheets that we have that help us get a better picture of what they're looking to achieve with their investments, what they're willing to do to get that. So are you looking for more cash flow? Are you looking for more appreciation? Are you just looking to diversify your stock portfolio? What asset classes are you looking at? Would you like a single family home, multifamily? Are you thinking more commercial space? And there's a million different strategies in real estate. The classic buy and hold, you buy it, you watch it appreciate, you collect rent. And then eventually it's paid off and you have an asset that continues to produce cash flow because you have a renter in there. Flips are all the rage. Buy a broken down house, fix mm -hmm. it up real nice, and then sell it for a profit. I don't think that's ever going away. And there's also the Burr strategy, which stands for buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. I think I got all the R's in there. <laughs> um, essentially buying a house that needs renovation as well. And instead of flipping it, you hold on to it. So you buy a house that needs work. You put a renter in there, you refinance it and pull your money back out, and then you go do it again. In an ideal world, that's what you do. These are kind of the things that we walk our investors through. We, we have a lot of conversations before we ever put them in touch with folks back in the U.S. So we really make sure that we know what they're looking for and that we're doing the right thing by them. And once we get that established, we put them in touch with the team and we help them walk through closing. How does one go about buying property sight unseen? How does one determine if it's worth investing in? That is a great question. And I will tell you the first time I did it, it was a little intimidating and scary. I was fortunate enough to be able to have my brother on the ground in the market where we were purchasing. And so family is a nice potential partner in this process. Someone that you trust. My brother later moved out of state and then we had my father-in-law who could help us. But eventually my husband and I have done this without family. So it is possible. But I would say if you have family in an area where you might be interested in purchasing, family members can be a great team member and they can be your eyes on the property if you can't be seeing it yourself. The technology is really helpful now that we have. We've done tours through FaceTime and walk through properties virtually. So that's a really nice feature. Even if you can't be there physically, you can be there virtually. Another really important factor for us is finding a great home inspector because they're going to be really looking at the property and being able to tell you what might need to be fixed, what looks great. And I really want my home inspector to recognize my situation, kind of put himself in my shoes as an out of country investor and help me get an idea of, hey, is this property worth investing in? Am I gonna run into a lot of potential headaches? Our home inspector is a really great team member to have. And, Factors to consider of determining if it's worth investing in. Additionally, questions of how well do you know the area that you're buying in, who you know in the area, which is partially what Tim and I help people find. If it's a market that you don't personally have connections in, we can help you connect to people that you can trust in that area. And I would say too, once you can get over the hurdle of this idea of buying a property sight unseen that you can't 
physically examine yourself, it really can be a nice process. My husband and I, our favorite memory of closing on a property is when we were on vacation in the French Alps and my father-in-law was signing as our power of attorney and we get a message that says, okay, everything's signed, the house is yours. And here we are sitting on the shores of Lake Ansi overlooking the Alps and just thought, wow, this is awesome. Like this is how we wanna buy all of our real estate. How can we do this more? So it is a little hurdle to get over at first. And again, that's partially why Tim and I have created the REI Concierge to help people understand like, yeah, it's a crazy process, but if you can put the right pieces in place, have the right people that you can trust on the ground, it's very, very doable. What are the main reasons why most Americans purchase property back in the U.S. while they're living overseas? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think the main one is that a lot of people are looking for diversification in terms of their investments. COVID-19 has really brought some scary things to light in terms of the stock market. I know it's doing great now, but there was quite a dip there that scared a lot of people. And this is something that I personally, when I started real estate investing six or seven years ago, I don't have a lot of patience or stomach for dips like that in the stock market. Mm -hmm. That's why I started investing in real estate because it's just such a solid investment. I mean, 2008 was obviously an anomaly and hopefully that will never happen again. I mean, there's no way we can guarantee that, but overall real estate is always an appreciating asset. It's something that doesn't fluctuate. Even if there's dips in the market, it's not something that you're going to lose half your investment overnight as sometimes can happen with stocks. So I think a lot of people see the benefits of having a more tangible asset, something that they have a little bit more control over. And real estate is that. You can put money into it. You can put in granite countertops and new HVAC and things like that and add value to it versus if I buy more iPods, iPods, how old am I? iPads <laughs> or iMacs or what have you, I'm not going to increase the value of my Apple stock. I think that has a lot to do with it. I think specifically for foreign service officers, and I can't speak for all expats, but a lot of us don't pay for housing also while we're overseas. It's government-sponsored housing. So we have this extra money that we're not paying a mortgage for. A lot of us have primary homes back home that are being rented out and taken care of by family or property managers. So there's extra income that we can set aside. That's a great time to put that into an investment property. And I think that a lot of people, once they talk about it and realize their options, a lot of people see merit to that. And it's something that they look forward to doing. It's a much more passive way to gain interest on your money. And it's not nearly as volatile as different things that you can potentially drop big chunks of money into. There's also the possibility that you might want to have a property to move into when you go back home. Some people, I know John and Lisa don't actually have a primary residence. They have <laughs> a dozen investment properties, but they don't have a primary residence because they move around the world so much. And some people are in that boat. You might want to have a property that you can move back into when you're done with your assignment or move back home or potentially a dream retirement home in a location where you can rent it out until you want to move into it in 20 or 30 years. These are all things that people consider, and we're happy to walk through people's 10, 20, 30-year goals. And we have clients that say, hey, I want a, an Italian villa. And we don't have too much experience in purchasing <laughs> properties in Italy, but we certainly want to talk through that option with them so we can make sure they have the money for it. And if the investment properties in the U.S. are a driving factor towards that, then we're happy to play out those numbers for them and see if it's reality or not. So it's all kind of fun to just see what people can do when they stretch things out over 10, 20, 30 years and not just look for those immediate returns. 
The REI Concierge recommends three elements when it comes to formulating a strategy or a foundation for investing in property, the why, the how, and the risk. Could you dive deeper into these? Yes, so the why, we start here. Why do you want to get into real estate investment? What do you like about it? What do you want to get out of it? And this can be a very simple answer of somebody saying, yeah, I just want to build my wealth. I just want to have more diversification. It might be more specific, like I want to have more monthly cash coming in, or I want a property that I know is going to appreciate that I can sell in the future and then buy my retirement home. For my husband and I, we decided that we wanted to have a source of income that was separate from our W-2 jobs that would support a basic lifestyle. And so that was sort of our starting out why we were getting into it. The second part, how, really can be clarified based on the why questions. We really do want to know the background of why and what's important, what you want to be getting out of it to determine how. There are so many ways to invest in real estate. And we love that about this type of investment, but it also can be overwhelming. And I talked to a client the other day who was really struggling because he's like, well, I've read all these books and I'm supposed to do this and then that, and this is the best way to go about it. And kind of had to back up and say, you know what, everybody has their opinion when it comes to real estate investment. So you're going to have some people that say, this is the best way to do it. And it's the only way to do it. Look at all those other people. They're making mistakes. And then you go to somebody else and they describe an opposite way and say, everybody else is making mistakes. And so, you know, what Tim and I really emphasize is the how it's really crucial for each person to find the best way for them. There is no one best way to invest in real estate. It is what's the best way for you? What's going to be the best strategy for how my husband and I started out with duplexes and we thought oh yeah let's stick with duplexes small multifamilies and it worked well for a little while and then because of some other factors we realized single family homes were going to make sense in a different market and so we adjusted a little bit along the way and i think that's another part of the why and the how of recognizing this isn't just something you answer one time it's an answer it now and then continue to reflect on that and evaluate as you learn, as your portfolio grows. And so it doesn't have to be set in concrete from the beginning. It can be a development over time. And the third element, the risk, every investment has some level of risk. With real estate, you can anticipate potential risk and work to hedge against them. And so we really believe that developing a risk management plan is foundational to having your real estate investment strategy. And again, there's no one right way to mitigate the risk. For each person, it depends what, you know, your comfort level with risk. Some people are more comfortable to take a bigger risk. Some people wanna really reduce risk as much as possible. And we often say having the right risk management plan helps you sleep well at night, which we think is so very important because you don't wanna buy a property and then be up all night worrying about what could happen. Looking at the risk, and, and we can talk more specifically in a little bit about what are some specifics, practically how you can mitigate those risks, but it is a really important part of the plan as well. When it comes to investing in real estate, one can be passive or hands-on. Could you expand on the different levels of passivity or involvement depending on the risk aversion, experience, and personal preferences? 
Sure. I think that's one of the things that Lisa and I both really like about real estate investment is the variety of options. I do want to say that I don't think any real estate investment is as passive as some people think it is. I think anything you do in real estate investment is somewhat hands-on, but there are certainly options that are much more passive than others. So some of the more active strategies in real estate investment I alluded to earlier, but buy and hold is really what I do in my personal investment for the most part. It's exactly what it sounds like. You buy a property, you rent it out, you have your tenants help you pay down the mortgage for you and you hold it until it's paid off. And then you have all kinds of options available to you in terms of selling it or giving it to your children or rolling it into a bigger property through a 1031 exchange. There's all kinds of different options you can do, but that is somewhat active. You have to find property management. And even if you have property managers that manage the property for you, you have to manage the managers. <laughs> it's kind of a never ending <laughs> cycle. But if you get a great property manager, it's pretty hands-off. You really just collect checks from the tenants. You you pay for repairs when they're needed and you keep the books on it and make sure that everything's working out as you want it to. So the 1031 exchange is essentially named after the IRS tax code, section 1031. Basically allows you to exchange a property for a like-kind property. So what it essentially does is it defers the taxes that you would pay on the sale of a property pretty much indefinitely. So if it's something that you would consider selling, but you would have to pay the capital gains taxes on that can be very steep, it's something you may want to consider trading into a different property and deferring those taxes. And I'll add some links to more information about the 1031 exchange in the show notes. Um, if you want to get a little bit more active, then you go into the flips and the burr strategy that I mentioned earlier, and those are about as active as you can get but also have probably the highest potential for uh, upside in terms of cash flow on the sale. So flips, you go in there, you buy a house that is decrepit or has not been taken care of for as cheap as you can get it, and then you renovate it. And then ideally it doesn't take too long and you sell it on the market and you make all the money back that you put in on the renovation as well as some extra for, for your time and effort. That's a super simplified version of what a flip entails. That's the gist of it. And the burst strategy is similar, except that at the end, you don't sell it, you rent it out, as I mentioned earlier. So that's kind of a combination of a flip and a buy and hold. It's just, it's a more creative way to use financing, whereas you put in your own cash and then when you refinance it, you pull that back out. So essentially you walk away from the house that you have none of your own money into and the tenant continues to pay down your refinance. In an ideal world, that's how that works out. And I don't want to get too detailed about that because it gets a little a little complicated, but those are all relatively active versions of real estate investment. On the more passive side, there's a ton of options and I won't go into all of them, but one is you can be a private equity lender. So essentially a lot of people are doing this now with their self-directed IRAs. They allow you to invest in flips or they allow you to invest for renovations so that you can actually take money out of your self-directed IRA and put that into a flip and then put that back into your self-directed IRA along with the interest you earned on it. So that's been a really popular thing over the past several years, rather than just having your IRA go into the stock market. You need a qualified guardian and there's some legal loopholes you have to jump through, but that's a great option for people that don't just have cash lying around to invest in those kind of things. You can also do notes or you are the mortgagor. So essentially you lend money, you collect interest on it, you become the bank. And that's, that's about as hands off as it gets. There's also syndications, which is a little more complicated and there's some more things about being a qualified investor and certain things you have to meet in order to take other people's money and put it into a commercial real estate project or 
a larger multifamily thing. But those are options that you can get into when you're a little bit more advanced and have some deals under your belt. Those can be relatively passive as well once you get your operations in place and know how to do those things. So there are options for every type of investor, and we really like to examine the why and the how of what our clients want to do in terms of what type of investment we want to put them into or steer them towards. Even the best laid plans can go awry. Do you have any advice on an exit strategy or a contingency plan in case something goes wrong with an investment? Back to the risk management, I think planning for certain things to go wrong is a good start where you just expect it because there's always going to be unexpected things that come along. And if we expect there to be challenges, then they can be less stressful because we've planned for them. So back to having that solid risk management plan, mitigating risks. In real estate investment, we talk about running the numbers or looking at the numbers. So we look at how much it costs to purchase the house. Are there going to be renovations? Are there going to be maintenance needs? How much rent are we getting? How much are we paying property management? All of these things factor into the numbers. And there's lots of different formulas of what percentage you should consider for maintenance, for the larger expenses, capital expenditures, etc. So you can be conservative in those. Some people like to estimate low, but estimating a little bit higher on the expense side can just help you be more conservative so that you are already planning ahead for a rainy day. My husband and I like to talk about what are the worst case scenarios? What would happen? And play those out through our conversations so that we can talk about, okay, well, how can we plan ahead for these? So a very practical example, we have what we call a real estate emergency account, just like we have our personal emergency financial account that we have money set aside. In case of emergency, we have that for our real estate investment. And there's lots of different ways how you can decide on the amount of that. Our homeowner's insurance has a $5,000 deductible. So we put aside $5,000 per property. And then we kind of consider that worst case scenario. We've got that money set aside. Some people would say, oh, wow, you don't need that much. Other people say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Again, it comes back to personal risk tolerance, what's going to allow you to sleep well at night. That's something that allows us to sleep well at night. And I also think the exit strategy that you mentioned, plan that out from the beginning. And, And this is really related to the why in some ways. So thinking through things like Maybe you're going to put the properties in a trust that would go on to family members or children, things like that. You can plan ahead for that. Do you want to sell the properties at someday in order to be able to buy your dream retirement property? Do you want to sell them and then live off of the proceeds? Are you going to sell them and pay for college for students? You can think about those things from the beginning. So that comes back to the why and also the how. So you can see we keep looping everything back to the strategy. Mm-hmm. The why, the how, which then again plays into the risk. There's no way to know exactly what's going to happen in the future, but we also we feel really confident that there are clear practical strategies that you can put into place to really mitigate that risk, have your contingency plans in place, and feel good about that and feel like you do have a little bit more control than perhaps with what the stock market is doing. How difficult is it for Americans abroad to get financing and mortgages for properties when they are an overseas resident? 
For the most part, it is not more difficult. I will say that with some qualifiers. <laughs> Things that certainly help are if you get paid in U.S. dollars. We do have a couple clients that are U.S. citizens living abroad, but we have one that's a professional basketball player, for example, and you know he gets paid in yen. So he makes plenty of money and has excellent credit and things of that nature. But when U.S.-based lenders look at that, they have a little bit of trouble coming up with the debt-to-income ratio that they need to see in order to lend on that. So getting paid in U.S. dollars is a huge benefit, makes things a lot easier. Having U.S. bank accounts set up, it may sound simple, but if you've been living overseas for a decade or more and you just don't have any more U.S. bank accounts left and you're pretty well situated where you are and everything's now in a Swiss bank account or a Dutch bank account, it makes things a lot more difficult. Not impossible, but a lot more difficult for U.S. lenders to get the information they need in order to lend. And then obviously having a social security number, there are ways around and being able to get a mortgage without a social security number, but it is exponentially more difficult. So having a social security number, being paid in U.S. dollars and having U.S. bank accounts are three things that really, really help our U.S.-based lenders lend to people that are living overseas. And once you have those three things in place, to be honest, it's not that much different than getting a loan if you're living back in the U.S. There's a couple additional hoops to jump through, but nothing that can't be overcome with a little mind-numbing paperwork and uh, some very detail-oriented form filling out on behalf of the borrower. And I do want to mention here that SDFCU really understands the lifestyle of foreign service better than most lenders, so they can be a great teammate and provide great advantages and even different potential lending options than other traditional mortgage companies or lenders will be able to. So SDFCU stands for State Department Federal Credit Union. Sorry, I hate using acronyms when people aren't aware of what it means. And it is not part of the State Department, but works with State Department employees. So it's a separate credit union that provides services for foreign service officers and other folks that work with the State Department. And they have a relationship with ACA so that folks at ACA have access to their services, which can be a huge benefit for them because they really understand the situation that we foreign service folks and expats are in. I know ACA members get access to the folks at SDFCU, and that can be a great thing to look into if you're looking to get into an investment property while living abroad. Lisa and I have also partnered with lenders that specifically work with American expats back in the States. And a lot of them have the ability to write mortgages in all 50 states. And they also specialize in investment properties. So we really kind of niche down in terms of finding lenders that specifically work with the folks that we work with. Um, so it really helps standardize the process and really make sure that we can tell our investors exactly what paperwork to have ready. And it's always going to vary a little bit depending on which lender you're using. But have this paperwork ready, send it over and ask any questions you have, and you're pretty much good to go. So for the most part, it's not too much harder as long as you have the things that I mentioned earlier. What is the general process for buying a U.S. property from abroad? So at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'm going to go back to determining your strategy. <laughs> Why, how, and the risk, uh, which really is foundational. The second thing is to utilize the resources that are available through the REI concierge. Tim and I have really designed our services to be a support for people developing their strategies. So if you don't know the answers to why and how and, and how risk tolerant you are, that's okay. We love helping people discover that. 
supporting you and finding local partners because having a local team is really important to successfully invest from abroad. Walking through the process of finding, buying, and renting properties, all of this, we are set up to help support people who are going through that process. The team, I'll just go back and emphasize this again, is really important. This can range from family to strangers and everywhere in between, friends sometimes. And Tim and I have done a lot of the legwork to help people find really excellent team members in a variety of markets, because that can take a lot of time and investment to have conversations and vet different people. And if you don't have any experience working with property management companies or a turnkey company, you may not even know what questions to ask or how to determine if they're going to be a good team member for you or not. Understanding the risks is another important part of the process. And in addition to what we've already talked about, I think it's a great idea to talk to other investors, learn from them, learn from people's mistakes. Tim and I are more than willing to share mistakes that we've made, challenges that we've run into, lessons learned to hopefully help other people avoid some of the same mistakes. And it's all a process and a journey. We're all continuing to learn. We don't have all of the answers, but we have figured out a process to find the answers when we run into new questions or new challenges. And honestly, I mean, one of the best experiences is to actually buy a property. There's nothing like getting your feet wet to learn. There is a process of developing your strategy, finding the right market, developing a team, and yet ultimately you got to jump out there, take the risk, buy a property, and learn along the way. And the REI concierge can just help be a support for people who feel like it's so scary and intimidating and you're just not sure. We can hopefully really transform the process from a stressful and scary one to an exciting process and one of learning and growing and just opening doors for more and more possibilities along the way. How does investing in real estate impact one's overall portfolio? I think one of the main ways, I mean, people are always talking diversification. So just like you want to diversify in the stock market amongst different equities and different funds and things of that nature, in real estate, you want to diversify too. So if you're talking about an ongoing investment plan, a lot of people like to diversify by purchasing in different markets. If you have everything based on the Florida coastline or in Houston and a hurricane comes by and wipes out your entire inventory, then you're going to be in a pretty bad position. So I think diversification is a huge thing, maybe buying several markets. That's not for everybody. A lot of people want to really get down to know their local market and purchase all their properties there. But even if we're talking diversification between different asset classes, adding real estate can only help diversify between your stocks and bonds and crypto and whatever else you may have. It never hurts to have a tangible asset that has a, a strong history of appreciating. There's also tax benefits, and I want to qualify this by saying I'm by no means a CPA, but the tax benefits for real estate can be tremendous. You get to write off the depreciation on your investment properties, a lot of the mortgage interest, and a lot of the expenses you spend to maintain that house, and it can really help come tax time at the end of the year. I've already mentioned that it's less volatile than the stock market in general, and I know, you know some stock enthusiasts will 
argue that till the day they die. But in my opinion, <laughs> it's overall much less volatile than the stock market and helps me to sleep better at night than a lot of my other investments. That's something that can help people diversify their portfolio. I think lastly, real estate is really a get rich slow scheme, for lack of a better term. It's not something that is necessarily flashy, especially when you're talking about a lot of the work that Lisa and I do, the, the long-term buy and holds out in the Midwest that are going to give you a few hundred dollars a month in cash flow and might appreciate it two or 3% per year. But if you add up to your portfolio and continue to add properties and continue to treat them well and make sure they're performing, I think that buy and hold real estate is one of the best, if not the best, long-term gradual wealth building strategy for individuals. And I think it's a great time to do it when you're living overseas and earning some extra money, which is the case for a lot of our clients. Are you seeing any trends in purchasing from abroad? Is COVID changing things? I think some of the trends that we're seeing is people are becoming a little bit more comfortable with this idea of buying from abroad. It's becoming a little bit more popular, maybe even, I don't know if we'd say mainstream yet. Strong markets are continuing. You know, the question is COVID changing things. Clearly the answer is yes, a resounding yes for all of us. And yet I would say that at this point, those of us who have really been watching the real estate markets closely, we're still sort of holding our breath. Oh, that's going to happen. Surely there's going to be some price corrections, market corrections. And yet the markets are strong. There's cities where people are going into bidding wars on properties because there's not that much inventory out there. We were a little worried about tenants leaving, moving out and not being able to find new tenants. And since March, we have had four or five turnovers in our units, some that were planned ahead of COVID, some that were kind of unexpected. And all of our units in a couple different markets have rented surprisingly fast and have even supported higher rents. So it's an interesting market right now. Everybody is sort of expecting a correction, and yet we're not there yet. So there's still a lot of unknowns. We like to say, you know, it's a great time to educate yourself. If you don't have a clear strategy, if you don't have a lot of experience, it's a wonderful time to take time to educate yourself, read some books, listen to podcasts, develop your strategy, talk to Tim or myself, talk with other investors, explore different markets, see what sort of trends are going on. And I think right now it's trying to find the balance between actively pursuing good investments and and go ahead and, and maybe purchasing a property or three and also keeping some cash on hand and being ready for future opportunities, which we expect to see on the horizon. We just don't know if it's going to be three months from now, six months from now, or longer. And so it's really a, a delicate balance of being active in the market right now and anticipating future opportunities. So again, I would say it's very personal depending how much money one has to invest, would it make sense to just go for it right now? Or would it make sense to kind of wait a little bit and give the market a little bit more time to kind of settle down for us to see how is COVID impacting us in the longer term? So it's an interesting time, certainly a time to 
not sit back and say, oh, I don't want anything to do with it, but also certainly not a time to maybe go full speed ahead. It's a little bit of a keep your wits about you, keep talking to people and keep learning throughout this time, I think. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity and really appreciate what the ACA does for folks like us <laughs> living abroad as Americans and the resources you provide. It's been fun getting to talk a little bit more about what we do and hopefully we can help some other fellow Americans living abroad to to take a look at real estate as an option. It's something that Lisa and I are both very passionate about. This really just came about as conversation that started between us a few years ago. It's something we always talk about and always have done and we're we're very passionate about sharing it with folks that are just starting to think about it or just want to get involved. If you're thinking of investing in real estate, just do it. You can analyze it all you want. Come talk to us. We can talk you through it. And I think eventually taking the plunge is the best way to get involved, as Lisa said earlier. And I'd also like to just follow up Tim's thank you and say thank you so much for having us on the podcast and for your services to American citizens abroad. I will just say this, we've talked a lot about strategy and I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I will say that the clearer you can be in your strategy, the more confident you can be in your investment. And that leads to this idea of being able to sleep well at night. We do think that it's worth taking that time to know why you want to do it, how you can do it, manage those risks smartly and wisely. And Tim and I would love to talk with anybody who's interested to explore that more, or if you just have questions, comments, we love, we love talking about real estate. <laughs> Thank you, Tim and Lisa, for joining us today. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad Podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us.